Hi, I'm Sam Candy. Welcome to Sustain Talks. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Griffith, Director of Policy and Partnership at Planet Mark and Chair of the Institute of Directors National Sustainability Task Force. Hi, Andrew. How are you? That's lovely to be here, Sam. Lovely to have yeah. you. See you. Good to see you. Um, I just want to start, as I do with all of my guests, hearing a little bit more. I mean, that was a very, very short introduction, but please <laughs> tell us more about you, what you do, the company you work for, and um, yeah, how you got it. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so I'm, I'm with Planet Mark, and uh, we're a sustainability certification for uh, organisations and for real estate. So we, we help uh, as a mark of progress, really. So um, organizations, there's you know, 650 plus organizations who certify with us have to demonstrate that they are reducing their emissions year on year in order to recertify each year. And um, we have a very good success rate of, of achieving that. And um, I guess my particular role is um, sort of on the partnership side. Uh, so we work with a lot of trade associations like the Royal Warrant Holders, uh, like the Institute of Directors uh, and a wide variety of others from a variety of sectors and uh it's essentially supporting them with their industry on how do we support their community to become more sustainable to go net zero all of that good stuff um and then on the policy side it's looking at how do we engage in and react to policies as they're emerging so things like the uh, iso net zero guidelines that was just launched at cop uh the um uh sort of with part of the race to zero campaign but also there's lots of legislation coming down the pipeline that's going to affect businesses in quite a, a pronounced way and so we look to make sure that we're supporting our members as much as we can with understanding that and that's that's part of my team's remit okay, okay. But, um, I always, again something i like to ask my um guests is what sustainability means to you uh hmm. personally yeah, well, I guess so the simplest definition of sustainability is is um, that uh, we're, we're taking actions and doing things that we could, in principle, keep doing forever <laughs> at a level that could be sustained forever. Um, ultimately, unsustainable behaviours are things that are out of balance with the geophysical limits of our natural environment in particular, but also our social environment. You know, what, what things place too much pressure onto a society and so our, our, our sustainable transition is is a balance of variables where we've got to try and you know what's the fastest that we can adapt and change and transition to uh you know minimize the climate change risks that we face and and minimize the the negative impacts of that what's the fastest we can achieve that but equally what's the fastest that we can move and the fastest that we can transition while having sort of mi uh, you know minimal um transition risk of of you know it, it it sort of really taking industries by surprise or you know leaving people sort of cut adrift and stranded assets and stranded people with that that's we so we have to have sort of achieve a balance of how fast we can move uh, in order for it to be the right transition for us do you think we can move fast or do you think like how fast do we need to move and how, you know, <laughs> like uh, uh, people often sort of don't either don't believe in climate change or um, 
don't think that what they do is going to make a difference. Mm. How mm. fast do you think we need to move? Can we move fast enough? Talk a little bit about that. So, firstly, I'll sort of address the, the you know, can people make a difference? And the what sort of in, in one sense, the wonderful thing about um, taking climate action is that at some level, every single small, tiny step you take, every single action makes a measurable difference. And every time that you choose to walk to the station instead of drive, every time that you choose to um, turn the heating down a bit, every time that you choose to um, you know, make sure that you're switching off the lights when you're not in rooms, every single one of those actions in principle adds up to because of the way that you know every single thing has a carbon emission and we have this carbon budget of this is the amount that we can in theory use before we will cross the threshold of 1.5 degrees into very unsafe territory where there are natural processes that we believe will start to amplify the uh, effects of climate change every single little thing that you do might reduce the amount of warming by 0.0000001 degrees or something you know and yes, it's very small, but when you start to see it like that, like every single little choice that I make, it has a measurable impact. And, and th in that sense, there's a real sort of sense of hope of it because it's about aggregate effects and aggregate change. And so how fast do we need to move? We need to move fast, for sure. Like it, 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 we need to move at a faster rate than we have on just about anything before. But I guess the sort of thing that I find hope in is... Um, someone was t t talking to me the other day and like they're, they're talking about the moon, the moonshot uh, project back in the 1960s. And when when JFK stood on the stage and said, in, in 10 years, we will land, uh, we will land on the moon. 1959. They achieved that goal in 1969. The remarkable thing about that is that when JFK stood on that stage, less than half of the technology that was required to get us to the moon existed. So, and they managed it in 10 years. So, so you know, it's one of these things where, well, yeah, how are we going to make these kinds of changes by 2050? 2050 is quite, you know, it's not that far away, but on the other side, it's quite far away. Like, and people often, you know, overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10. Um, and that, that's very true of us as a civilization. And um, so I, I'm personally quite excited to see how fast we can move, particularly now that the money, you know, in the financial system is really moving toward investing in this because the financial system is very much woken up to the risk to the economy uh, and the fact that you can't have an economy on a on a, a planet that's, uh, you know, un, uninhabitable for humanity. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and you say you know, this, and I, I agree with you, I think that the technologies that are coming now and the investment that's being made, and we're starting to see things coming out that, that every year that are new that we haven't heard of. And I believe it, even in the next sort of 10 years that we're going to be in a completely different place and that we're going to see um, new technologies. Uh, you just have to look at the way EVs have, you know, have, have progressed so much and there's a lot more work to go there but do you think 2050 is too far you know a lot of people are setting net zero goals to 2050 but some people say that we need to 
be really drastic in the next seven years. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The short term progress is is kind of the most important piece. And and it's an easy way, like the, the good sort of uh sort of the 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 way the way you can put this into a sort of a relatable context is that pensions like we're, we're all told you know when you get you know out of university invest in your pension as early as possible because the miracles of compound interest right in that the longer you are putting into your pension the greater that it compound the interest compounds and it grows and it grows and it grows and actually the the length of time that you are investing in your pension has a substantial effect upon the outcome the same is true, but in a in a kind of negative context for emissions. The more we put in right now, it has a compounding effect. It it, it the, the more that goes in now, that the the more action we will have to take later because we move the finish line uh, kind of closer towards us. I.e., the cart the 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 more we burn and more we emit now, the nearer the end of our carbon budget is. And the faster we will have to sprint to make sure that we don't cross that line and sort of yeah, the faster we end up having to move. So it's it's we have to be very careful. Um, and, you know, arguably at a global level, yes, 2050, I would say it's too late. Um, I think people are already worried about that. Um, and I think in the minds of businesses and in the minds of uh, in, in of governments, we really that the thing. Yes, okay, set a 2050 target. Um, but the thing I'm most interested in is what's your plan in the next year, number one. What's your plan in the next three to five years, number two. And what's your plan by 2030, number three. And that, uh, because that's, it's a far more realistic time Because <laughs> one of the really interesting uh, things is like, imagine asking a business, um, can you show me your business plan for what your business will, uh, how your business will still be making money in 2050? No one does that. Not even the big companies do that. That's just, it's just way too far away. Like, so how, why are you confident that your business will still be making money in 2050? The reason I'm confident in that is because my business plan that I do on an annual basis and my business plan that I do on a five year or a 10 year basis, I, that, gives me confidence that I'm, I have the right strategy in place that means I'm going to continue to grow over the next year and the next year and the next year. So it's the systems we have on play, in place on a far more short-term basis that gives us confidence in our viability at a later date, um, not the, that we've set a target for a later date and we've got the strategy to achieve that by 2050. So it just doesn't work like that. And I think our, our engagement on sustainability and reducing carbon emissions needs to become far more about the reason I'm confident I'm going to be net zero by 2050 at the latest is that the processes I have in place today will get me there. Yeah. Um, because it's a self-correcting, self-perpetuating system of governance inside what I'm doing day to day, year on year, in my five-year plan, all of those things. So that's what we need to see is, is far yeah. more short-term governance structures that give us confidence in the end outcome. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. I always say to companies that are saying, oh, we're going to do this by 2050. I'm like, you sure you're even going to have the same leadership team and board and CEO by that time? Well, and most you're making won't. decisions that people <laughs> aren't even going to be in your company. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 So, um, but for businesses, um, it, 
it can be challenging for them to, you know, everyone's got sustainability on their websites now. It is part of um, most businesses uh, have a strategy in place or they're thinking about putting a strategy in place or they're trying to educate themselves as quick as possible or bring people in that can help. What do you think the biggest challenges are for businesses that um, are, are on their sustainable journey or starting out even? I think I think business's biggest challenges are business's biggest challenges. It, it sort of it sort of doesn't matter. It, it's it's not specific. The, the challenges that they face within sustainability are the same as they face within every other sort of facet of their business, especially at the moment. So, the biggest challenges for business right now is there's a cost of living and cost of doing business crisis, uh, where with energy rocketing in the UK, the sort of energy relief scheme is coming to an end. It will be replaced by an energy discount scheme but it means that energy costs are going to go up again for businesses in april mm. um the so i think the the sort of the the cost of living crisis and cost of energy mm. in particular is, is is hitting businesses hard um and and just the, the time and the resource you know the big the big stuff we've we've done a a, a white paper that will be released in the very near future looking at what are the challenges and the opportunities that small and medium-sized businesses have to achieve net zero. Um, and the big challenges really are about resource. And interestingly for like smaller businesses, it's not necessarily a question of budget, of money. It's more a question of time. You know, investing the time you, with a limited team. How, how do I invest the time in wrapping my head around that? And that leads to the second big challenge, which is that there is, is, is actually not at this stage that there's not enough information is that there's too much information that's not well enough curated for small businesses to look at. So there's so many different potential sources, so many different places you could read on what you're supposed to do and the top tips and this and that and the other. And we need to have a far more consistent approach to having you know, a, a gospel of this is what you need to do as a business. Here are your opportunities. Here are your no-cost you know, initiatives that you can do. Here are your low-cost initiatives. This will be what the return on investment will be. And so I think, you know, to address the biggest challenges, really focus in on the low-hanging fruit that will will improve your sustainability, yes, but it also just fundamentally helps the, the functioning of your business by reducing your costs or by increasing your, your profitability. And so, you know, in, you know the, the cheapest units of energy is the one that you don't use. So if you can do cost saving initiatives, they are having very rapid payback periods now. If there, if there's anything you need to spend on it, the you know, solar panels have gone from being a payback period of like seven to 10 years to being like one to three years now. You know, I've had business leaders say to me, look, back when it used to be seven to 10 years, that was already a better investment of money than most things I would invest my money in. But now it's practically a business plan in its own right like i'm um, getting me as many of these things as i can i'll be i'll be making money on it within a few years so it's yeah i think invest in the things that are gonna help on all counts you know really align it and focus in on what's going to make a difference for your business fastest and ultimately then contribute to reducing your emissions as quickly as possible yeah absolutely um you were last year uh, um at COP27, one of the people that went along. What were your, and I, I 
personally, I've seen your your videos mm. and your thoughts on it, but I'd really like to share it with my community. Um, what what you thought from sort of from start to finish, like an overall <laughs> view of of going there. Yeah, I mean, so it was interesting, COP27, because I, I attended COP26 in Glasgow as well. It, 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 safe to say it was very different. <laughs> um, Sharm yeah. El Sheikh uh, is an interesting place to host a COP because it's sort of, it felt a bit like a, an Egyptian Las Vegas. Uh, it's very resorty, casinos and big hotel resorts, sort of things like that. Um, and it's all along one strip along the coast. And yeah, um, it 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 the 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 best things that happened at COP were the stuff that happened around COP more so than what happened in it. Mm. Um, there were logistically, uh, it was something of a shambles uh, in, in terms of uh, you know none of the volunteers knew where anything was. Um, they, they were still building a lot of the site three or four days in, um, so there was sort of construction going on all around us uh, for the first sort of half of the first week we uh you know they ran out of food and water in their blue zone at at one point which i don't know about you but if you've got sort of you know the negotiators for all of your different countries working on sort of one of the most important deals in human history um i don't make the best decisions when i'm hungry <laughs> I certainly not when I'm thirsty. So, like, I'm not sure we want our climate negotiators hangry while they're uh, while they're debating with each other about what we should be doing. So, it wasn't the best sort of setup from a from a logistical standpoint. But in terms of outcomes, um, it you know the the summit itself, um, the only thing that moved forward really was the loss and the creation of the loss and damage fund, um, which essentially was official recognition that um, the countries who are getting hit hardest by the effects of climate change are not the ones who have contributed most to the problem. And so there needs to be some kind of, uh, you know, when countries like Pakistan get submerged a third of the country underwater with billions and billions of uh, dollars worth of damage done, they should not be alone in helping to foot the, the bill to repair from that damage and that that's really what the loss and damage is about it's about supporting countries who are hit hardest by the effects of climate change so that they don't end up in a spiral where their economy and their their you know their country sort of kind of collapses as a result of these impacts so that's why it was created but at the moment there's still not much specifics you know we don't know who's going to pay how much by when who will draw from the fund and how they'll get the money and when they'll get the money. All of that detail is yet to be decided. Um, a working group was set up that were working on it this year. And that's going to be the big, it'll be a, continue to be one of the really big topics at COP28. And there will be a lot of heated debates about all of that uh, for various reasons. But that was the, the only thing that really moved forward. And everything else, we kind of stood still, which when it, in that, the wording of the COP26 agreement wasn't really moved forward. We we didn't expand our, you know, the, the COP26 document said that we would um, seek to um, phase down unabated coal and inefficient uh, or ineffective fossil fuel subsidies. That wording stayed the same. There were pushes to uh, make it broader. Uh, India 
and Pakistan led the charge on saying, can we please broaden the phase-down unabated coal to phase-down all fossil fuels to make it more sort of across the board? And uh, oil-rich nations stopped that coming through. Um, and there were pushes to try and make it phased out, which was the original hope on the wording, rather than phase down, because phase down is very subjective. Phase out is very clear about the end goal. Um, uh, and again, we 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 uh, we didn't get movement on that. So, in 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 climate negotiation terms, standing still is the same thing as moving backwards. Because again, remembering what I said about that, the finish line uh, gets harder. You know that when you delay another year making a decision to progress forward, the action that you're going to have to take in later years becomes more uh, intense, more extreme. You have to go far more quickly and far more ambitiously in order to compensate the fact that you took longer to to make the decision. So um, think of it as like um, imagine standing still on a treadmill. <laughs> what's going to happen you're going to fall off the back you know it, it, you 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 are moving backwards if you're standing still you need to be progressing forwards continuously and that's the point of the cop summits is that they're meant to move us forward each year in ambition and it didn't do that so given the effort that goes into producing it and the amount of people that attend that fly over there um with the outcomes that that came from it is it worth it? <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily see an alternative to we need international discussion and agreement. One of the interesting questions is because currently the COP becomes a little bit of a circus because what it was meant to be is is this is where the United Nations negotiations are happening between countries. And that's the blue zone. But then the green zone is where all the business and public engagement happens and these days, um, it, it, it COP gets kind of confused by particularly the general public because there's this whole kind of posturing and there's all this business stuff going on on the side. And and there's a question as to how much should we be having this business engagement thing alongside these negotiations because it becomes a bit of a distraction from what we're actually trying to achieve, which is, which is you know, more legislative sort of intergovernmental agreement and negotiations. It's not, that's not actually about directly engagement businesses there necessarily. And so one of their question marks was, should we separate the two? And there should be, you know, COP summit should be about the negotiations and negotiations alone. And then at another time of year in another place, you have the, you know, climate, business, world fair kind of thing. And interestingly, we're kind of seeing movement on that, in that the world, um, no, the, in that the UNFCCC uh, has has announced that they are going to do a world climate event sometime in summer, somewhere else, and I, I think they're not going to stop the green zone activity stuff for COP twenty eight by by any means. But I think doing an event at another time of year is sort of an attempt to see could we draw people into something along those lines, which would also minimise the impact of COP summits because less if, if we had a world fair kind of thing and we hosted that because the world fair piece could be hosted in slightly more um logical places shall we say yeah in that yeah. like sean Oshek didn't necessarily have the infrastructure to deal with that number of people descending on it in the way that they descended on it um and 
but the COP summits have to move to a different jurisdiction each year very naturally because we have to be inclusive. We have to involve different areas of the world in this discussion and negotiation. Whereas the the business sort of welfare kind of concept doesn't necessarily need to to be as wide ranging. It could it can go to big central cities that can handle it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, I worked in the ex exhibition industry um, for twenty years, and a lot of the um, what I'm seeing is a lot of the industries are in their own exhibitions are actually having a real focus on sustainability now. So the trade events are doing the business side of it. So yeah. they're in really, really including sustainability a lot more than than yeah. they they did before. Uh, you know, thinking back sort of three years ago, um, I remember, well, actually probably four years ago, given COVID, um, going to an event where sustainability wasn't on the agenda at all. And now every single trade event that I look at has a sustainability mm -hmm. agenda, which is great. And actually, I think like moving on now when you look at how the conversation how far it's come um mm. even for people you know businesses to even wanting to have a net zero plan or a, a sustainability strategy or an esg strategy then then mm. that's come so so far from where it was uh four or five years ago um i'm interested a little bit more about uh, you know your organization is um as you say uh, for accreditations new credit businesses um uh, there's lots of accreditations out there you know i say you mentioned b corp um csr accreditation lots and lots of different hundreds of accreditations i i, I believe um but for businesses um what do you think and obviously planet mark but um do you <laughs> do you think um that accreditations are important for businesses and what kind of frameworks do you like to see and how do you like to see them yeah so i think i guess a couple of things is you know what 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 are the benefits of being certified to something right like why, why do people go out and get a degree why do people want to you know be have their 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 progress on on net zero certified why do people want to have their progress on you know, CSR certified. I think that, you know, there's a couple of things. One one is that it, it it it's a good way of kind of testing yourself. You're seeing at what level am I at and how can I compare myself in a in a in a in a in a relevant way to my peers and to other businesses. Where do I where do I fit? The second is that it then gives you indications of well, okay, what do I need to do to improve? How do I get better? And then the third thing is it allows you to then talk about that and, and, and share that messaging in a credible and authentic way with your customers, with your investors, with your suppliers. You know, you're able to sort of talk about it and, and say, no, it's not, I'm not just saying that I care about these things. I, look, I've got I've, I've proof, I have evidence that I'm doing it. And so I think the key thing for me in terms of, you know, what makes a, a good, you know, certification kind of is... I think it needs to be a market, particularly when it comes to things like net zero carbon footprinting. It can't just be a rubber stamping exercise. It's not just about, hey, I've got you know my carbon footprint. Someone said that, yeah, that's my carbon footprint. That's not enough. Like, why are we, why are we doing a carbon footprint to reduce it? 
Okay, so it needs to be a mark of progress. It needs to be, and so that, that's what Planet Mark certification is about in that our members have to be reducing their carbon emissions year on year in order to recertify. And so when you see the Planet Mark icon on a product on, uh, you know, in an office on a, on, a, on a certificate, you know that that business has committed to and is making progress to reduce their emissions each year. That's that sort of sign of confidence. With B Corp, um, you know, we love B Corp and, and B Corp's a really wonderful governance framework or that goes much sort of broader in terms of scoring organizations on the basis of their wide effects, the policies they have in place, what governance they have in place. And so, you know, environmental sustainability and carbon is one part of that. So you'll get points on the on the B impact assessment if you, um, you know, you'll get points on it if you have an environmental management system, if you are demonstrating, you know, carbon emission reductions, if you have a net zero target, that scores you points. Um, but it, it, you know, it doesn't that, you know, the big Corp don't help you measure your carbon footprint or help you reduce it. It's just that you score points if you are doing that. So yeah, B Corp is kind of a governance framework. So I think, you know, look for marks of progress, look for, you know, robust checking. The, you know, the other thing is that there are, there are lots of, a lot of the things that you'll see out there at the moment is they're kind of software as service type things where they, you plug your numbers in, you get a result back. Yay, I'm certified. But no one's checked that. Like you could put whatever you wanted into the system and it will spit out a number. And they mm -hmm. just kind of trust implicitly that you're putting the right numbers in. There's no errors there. There's no manipulation there. And one of the things that's now coming out in in, in legislation and in standards, both, both the ISO net zero guidelines, which Planet Mark is, was the first worldwide early adopter of, um, as well as um, European legislation, like um, the European Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is sort of coming into effect over the next couple of years, and the European Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, uh, which is coming out a couple of years after that, the UK Transition Plan Task Force Framework, all of these things call for third-party verification mm -hmm. Of, from a competent third party, you need to you need your carbon footprint and your progress and your targets to be verified. And what that means is when we certify companies of Planet Mark, they give us their data, yeah, but they also have to submit evidence. So we we want to see you know you submit data saying oh this is how much energy we used, which we used to then convert it into yeah, okay that much energy equals that much carbon emissions, but we also want to see the invoices associated with your energy bills because we're going to check and, and make sure that these things add up and that's what the third party verification piece is about is it, is it gives confidence in that certification because you know that it's been independently verified mm. yeah great and actually i think it's good to see these kind of the directives coming in and the structure because there's a lot of confusion about what people need to do and have to do and should do and you know, it gives the guidance of, of where yeah. to start. Um, what are your goals for, we were at the beginning of the year, so what are your goals for 2023? I mean, so the we're very impact focused. We're impact driven. So, you know, for us, it's all about what, how, how do we have the, the greatest impact and, and the, our sort of big focus is around net zero and carbon emission reduction. So, you know, during 2022, I don't have the latest stats yet, but, um, during 2022, up to the end of sort of November, we had measured 
more than like 115,000 tons of carbon emission reductions in businesses and more than 180,000 tons of carbon emission reductions in uh, construction because we certify construction projects as well for again for progress for reducing carbon emissions by taking sustainability initiatives to do changes to design the materials the processes the logistics the supply chain all of those things we calculate the, the the reduction of emissions associated with that in a life cycle assessment so you know overall last year we would have measured with with our members uh, around 300,000 tons of carbon emission reductions so when we come to this year and setting our strategy for this year, the question is, okay, 300,000 tons last year, you know, what is it going to take to get to 500,000 tons or a million tons or 10 million tons? Like, you know, and that's how we kind of set our trajectory. And there are two ways that we do that. Number one is supporting our members and our community to do more and be very hands-on, very proactive in supporting them to understand and, and make more progress individually with each company themselves so we're you know investing more in doing that and then the second thing is to grow the community of organizations who are making this commitment um and so you know by the end of the year i'd love to see us grow from sort of 650 members to you know 800 900 000. um we're going to engage more in policy this year in particular in terms of supporting the development of it to make sure that it you know, it meets the standards that we would expect to see of legislation, of standards of policy, but also then helping our members keep way ahead of the curve because there's no easier way of keeping ahead of the curve than if you're one of the ones designing it. <laughs> so, um, so we're leaning into that. You know, we're helping develop the UK net zero carbon building standard right now as one of the working groups. Uh, we're, you know, we're implementing the ISO net zero guidelines um, uh, out there. And we'll be engaging in a lot of other things um, and, and making sure that we're representing the voice of our members and community in those discussions and at those that table. So, like, for instance, when next Monday or Tuesday, we expect the UK government's net zero review to be released. Um, you know, we will be reviewing that, digesting it and trying to make sense of what does that mean for our members? And, and what's our feedback and response to it on the basis of what we know our members will, uh, <laughs> the impact it will have on them, yeah. Yeah, and um, we, we're coming to the end. I always like to ask this um, from people like you. I know you're, um, you're connected to lots of people in the sector, um, but who inspires you? Uh, who should people be listening to, following, what kind of books to read, um, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I, I'd probably I'd flag um, my favourite podcast is Outrage and Optimism. And uh, that's uh, Christiana Figueres, uh, Tom Rivet Karnak and Paul Dickinson. And, you know, the podcast is fantastic, but it's worth following each of those people individually because they are legends. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, where Christiana Figueres was the sort of architect of the Paris Climate Agreement. In 2015, she was sort of executive secretary of the UN uh, climate change uh, sort of committee at that time. Uh, and Tom Rivet Karnak was sort of her, her right hand uh, as part of that process. And then Paul Dickinson was the founder of CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, back in 2000. Um, and so they're, they're people who have, you know, really given their all already to to you know, taking climate action. And um, yeah, they inspire me a great deal, particularly because they're, they're candid 
lightness about it, you know, about the the need for balancing that outrage and the optimism and, you know, how we, you know, chart a path to, to a future that we choose and a future that we're all hopeful for. And um, there's, you know, uh, Christiana and Tom have a book called The Future We Choose. And, um, you know, that's that's really what this is all about, right? even outside of the, the, the realms of sustainability and carbon emissions, what future do we want to live in? Like, what do we want the world to feel like in 2050? What do we want it to look like? Where will we live? You know, what sort of houses will we live in? What, what, how will we make energy? How will we travel? What products will we buy and where will they come from? How will they arrive to us? How will they have been made? What food will we eat? How, where will that have been made? How will it have traveled to us? Is it a local kind of thing? You know, really one of the things that we're going to be doing this year, this is our 10th anniversary this year for Planet Mark. And one of the things we'll be doing this year is really thinking about that and reflecting a lot on that is what is our vision for the future? You know, what, what world do we want to live in? And, and that's as much about living in a sustainable world as it is about living in a world where, you know, people are treated with dignity and uh, we we see honesty in our politicians. We see, um, you know, innovation uh, across all different realms of life, and that that social, you know, social justice and social empowerment is just as much at the core of sustainability as as carbon emissions. So yeah, I'm looking forward to going through that reflection, and we're you know watch this space because we'll be having these kinds of reflections around what we think the world, what we hope the world will look like in 10 years and in 20 years and in 2050 um, and setting out a vision for, for what we want to see from that. So I'm, I'm excited to do that. And I'm excited to read it and see it and hear about it. And we'll have to jump on another podcast when you're ready to reveal that. <laughs> um, and I think that's a really great way to end this podcast. And it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Um, and, you know, keep doing what you do. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope to speak to you again really, really soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Sam.